I'm Ebony C. Peace, and this sermon is titled, Unopened Gifts, The Call to Live Into Our Calling. What if we got rid of all of the multiple justice-related committees in our congregations? The Eighth Principle Committee, gone. The Social Action Group, gone. LGBTQ Task Force, the Green Team, the Environmental Justice Committee, whatever we call them. What if we let them go? Why would we do that? What might it look like if we did? How would getting rid of our justice committees help make anything better? Are these not the kinds of committees where most of our faithful holy work gets done? I'm a lifelong Unitarian Universalist. For my whole life, I have understood that what we want as a community of faith is peace on earth. We don't get to peace without justice. We don't get to justice without love. For us to have peace on earth, we need to embody love. When we put love into action, it looks like honoring the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It looks like dismantling racism and other forms of oppression. It looks like settling for nothing less than justice, equity, and compassion. Love in practice is accepting one another, encouragement, truth-finding, truth-telling, it's democratic fairness and liberty. When we love, we hold sacred the interdependent web of all existence. What does loving ourselves have to do with getting rid of our many committees? Let's explore this. And most importantly, let's explore how can we best love ourselves from a perspective that relentlessly connects us with the divine. How can we fulfill our calling as a community and as a congregation? Once we've grounded ourselves in loving ourselves, then we peel back the layers and reflect on how we best love others, specifically within the congregations we are a part and the larger world community. Let's be clear that loving ourselves is taking care of ourselves. I have seen and felt that one of the best ways to care for ourselves and love ourselves is to follow our calling. Do what we have put, do what we have been put on this earth to do. In the context that I often work, I mostly view our calling as an authentic vocation. Some fulfill what they're called to do through paid employment, but for others, their calling may not come with financial compensation. This is true for many of our congregations. At a congregational level, we too have a congregational calling. What is your congregation called to do? Challenges come when we as congregations try to be the wrong thing and too many things and not what we have been called to do. The whole world needs saving, but as congregations, we are meant to make a big impact with a small focus. Instead, we often try to be and do more than our humble budgets and small sized congregations can often handle. Caring for ourselves, Loving ourselves means answering our call. I say answer because it indeed sings to us. It calls to us. For some, we just feel it in our bones. For others, we've put earmuffs on because someone told us listening to that beautiful song is irresponsible, not realistic, ridiculous. Some taught us to fear that beautiful, holy tune. Some of us who feel our call in our bones, ignore it because we are convinced that our feelings don't matter. 
Our calling is our unique purpose. When we follow our calling, the universe and its gratitude for us finally accepting our call gives us what we need to thrive. This includes clarity and financial abundance. Imagine what we can do with more income. Imagine the freedom and the self-determination we can lean into, the trainings and opportunities we can bring to our community to deepen our spiritual growth. Imagine the causes we could donate to, the people and communities we could bless. And yes, the deck and building and other technical and facilities things we can fix. When we follow our call, we do work that's meaningful, fulfilling, and serves others. We make the contribution we've been put on this earth to make. Doing what we've been called to do isn't always clear cut. We may confuse what our calling is with doing something great. It is not always the same thing. Another point is that what we've been called to do in this moment may be different six months from now. To know the call of the moment means always listening, always feeling, always discerning. We all benefit when we each connect to our purpose, which connects us to the divine within us. The Gospel of Thomas verse 70 reads as follows. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. We all see the suffering around us, people destroyed and exploited. They have no room in their lives to think about, much less follow their divine given calling. My lived experience has shown me when we do not follow our calling, life does not get better, it gets worse. The Gospel of Thomas reminds us of this spiritual law. Whether we are an individual or a congregation, it's our duty to follow our calling, to love ourselves. Following our calling is the epitome of love. It is the way we say thank you and show our gratitude to the Spirit. The way we accept and embrace our interconnectedness, the way we show love, I believe the type of heaven on earth is where everyone has agency and freedom because their inherent worth and dignity is respected. People care for and love themselves. People who are inspired, loved, and joyful, they touch others with their joy, inspiration, and love. Soon the earth is overrun with joy, inspiration, and love. We stop fighting each other. Stop mistreating each other. We start loving each other. Abraham Maslow is the author of one of the world's um, best-known theories on motivation. He has a five-tier model of human needs. The bottom are basic physical needs. Then, once these needs are met, we are then motivated by safety needs, which include things such as personal security, employment, and health. Then we get to higher level needs, such as love, belonging, and esteem. At the very top is self-actualization. Self-actualization is a desire to reach our potential, live our dreams, and follow our passions. We will find that our calling fulfills these top three tiers because they include connection, freedom, self-esteem, and joy. What is amazingly unacceptable is how much of our population does not have their basic physical needs met. They are food insecure, unhoused, unemployed, and unable to get the health care they need. 
In our oppressive, capitalistic society, living into our calling has become a luxury. Our calling, it's not some specific formal position, but a specific type of service that can be expressed in any variety of positions. There are dozens of ways we can live into our calling. We only have to open our minds and step into one of the many possibilities. Or do we? Is it so easy? It is not. When we follow our calling, we follow through with our purpose using the gifts we were born with. These gifts are our strengths. The way our society is socialized, especially for our most vulnerable, makes it difficult, if not impossible, for them to live into their calling. Many of us are walking around with divinely held gifts we're too afraid to open. Consider that the biggest barrier to living into our calling for most is the world of work. I believe most workers are exploited. Maggie Lee Van Tovskaska, a scholar born in Ukraine, writes that she prefers using the term exploitation over burnout because burnout makes it about workers' feelings. Exploitation draws attention to employer practices and policies which require structural solutions. Research studies from the Harvard Business Review reveal that millennials are workaholics, forfeiting vacations at a much higher rate than previous generations. A different study drawn by Project Time Off found millennials are also more likely to make fun of colleagues who take vacation. <laughs> These are the same millennials we would love to have in our communities. They are overworked and seem to have little time for multiple church meetings or three-year committee term commitments. They seem trapped in a rat race. As a black woman, my ancestors were attacked and enslaved by greedy, compassionless people. Once they were beaten down and exploited in body, mind, and spirit, the physical chains came off, replaced were invisible chains in their hearts and minds. And this caused many to remain on the presentation, plantations, even when presented with opportunities to escape. Some enslaved people felt their enslavers were doing them a favor by enslaving them. Some were brainwashed. They believed the risk of escaping was too high. They felt trapped. They were enslaved because of economic greed. Where is the line between an employer and an oppressor? Not all CEOs are terrible, though, not all employers. One outlier, a respected CEO named Dan Price of Gravity Payments, is a model for economic justice at work. He's online every day advocating for workplace justice. He has a values-based philosophy, which translated into launching a $70,000 a year minimum wage at his company, which also resulted in tripling Gravity Payments revenue. There are other CEOs who have a very different opinion about how much their employees should earn and who should foot the bill. The Government Accountability Office undertook a study revealing approximately 70% of adult wage earners and federal aid programs such as Medicaid, food stamps, worked full-time, full-time hours. It found many recipients are employed by large, profitable companies such as Walmart, McDonald's, Dollar Tree, and Amazon. In short, we taxpayers are subsidizing the livelihoods for many full-time workers because our culture allows 
companies to pay less than a living wage. The worker is being exploited. Taxpayers are being exploited. In our Unitarian Universalist culture, we focus on racial justice. Yet, for example, studies by the Liberal Economic Policy Institute and the Social Mobility Commission continue to find social class as more likely to determine success outcomes than race or merit. These findings seem to suggest that money makes the world go round, not necessarily race. Consider that the root oppression is economic superiority first, and everything else is a secondary devastating symptom. With money comes the ability to control, which cycles back to enable the ability to generate more wealth. The root of slavery was about wealth. Reproductive issues are about wealth and control. Immigration is about wealth and control. All of this falls under the umbrella of economic justice. Through control and fear, many of us, those we care about, are left with little more than the ability to live day by day. This system is designed to keep us from our calling because our calling is empowering. Our calling gives us courageous faith to journey through fear. Our calling helps us get out of the rat race. We as individuals are in the rat race. We as congregations are in the rat race. This exhausting, competitive daily routine filled with scarcity mindsets and financial struggle. We must deliberately exit, exit out in order to follow our calling. Fighting for economic justice is a spiritual imperative. There is no expression of inherent worth and dignity when economic exploitation is present. Though it starts with economic injustice, it doesn't mean race does not matter because it does. Black people have it particularly hard. We know why. And I encourage all of us to learn more. There's a whole book, for example, on the phenomena called The Black Tax, The Cost of Being Black in America by Sean D. Roster. In short, the black tax reminds us of the financial cost of systemic racism, cultural and family obligations that make it difficult for black people to generate wealth. In the workplace, many experience fear, intimidation and mistreatment, all people. As a community of faith, as a faith community, we should not be letting this happen under our watch. Let's take a lesson from our siblings in faith, the Catholics. They believe it's a spiritual duty to end labor exploitation. For example, the Catholics have, or at least had, an impressive role called labor priest. The two most notable were John Ryan and Francis Haas. They, as described in the Catholic University archives, and I quote, advocated for collective bargaining rights into the 1930s New Deal out of their convictions that just labor laws were at the heart of Catholic social teaching. These labor priests had educational backgrounds in social science, moral theology, and ethics. They served as Department of Labor mediators, helping to settle over 500 labor strikes. John Ryan also did extensive research into living wage issues, workers' rights, and employer-employee obligations. You know, talk about community ministers, right? Wow. You know, I imagine these labor priests took note from the Bible, where it reminds us not to forsake our divine given gifts. Our holy gifts, which we use to follow our call. Matthew 7, 6 says, Give not which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again 
and rend you. I may not know exactly what your purpose is, each and every one of you, but I can with certainly tell you what it is not. Our purpose is not to suffer and be exploited. Our purpose is not to sit back and watch others experience unfair labor practices. Our purpose is not to give the best of our spirits to workplaces that forsake us. To give our best and our soul to those who do not deserve it, to do so is unholy. I am inspired by these labor priests. Focusing our efforts on economic justice can give us the most return when it comes to our spiritual energy and the efforts of our hearts. I am not a minister, and yet I have a ministry. In the tradition of labor priests, my background as a clinical sociologist, I spend much of my spiritual energy ministering to those seeking to live into their divine given calling. Much of my applied sociological practice has been in career consulting and organizational development. I'm also a believer in systems theory, and I've come to reflect on my own theory of how we may be spiritually grounded within the work we do. How we may love ourselves by taking care of ourselves, love our congregations by taking care of our congregations specifically toward efficiency, engagement, and community building as we take action to change the world. So let's circle back. Let's imagine, you know, we're doing away with all of the justice-related committees in our congregation. You know, why should we do this? <laughs> we, as a faith, are trying new things and outdated old structures and wonder why it seems so hard to make positive change. In our small, intimate, and heavily siloed committees, we serve ourselves and offer a few good tidings to the world. And with silos removed, we could serve more deeply, be better stewards of our time, money, and energy, make a bigger impact. We believe we are all interconnected, but in practice, in our communities, in our congregations, we are disconnected. A committee here, a committee there, we become defined by the committees we are a part of instead of the whole, instead of our faith. In the book, Justice on Earth, People of Faith Working at the Intersections of Race, Class, and the Environment, Pamela Spire writes, and I quote, We often operate in narrow silos of particular interests, both within our congregations and in national organizations. Those who work on environmental or climate issues don't talk with those interested in racial justice or who seek um, or who work on affordable housing or mass incarceration. The group interested in economic justice issues is in its own corner and the people who care about multiple issues get burned out going to so many meetings. This siloed situation has to change if we are to preserve our sanity and health and maximize our effectiveness, end quote. Many of the scholars of our faith agree. We must apply intersectionality. However, most stop short of providing a concrete model of what this looks like in practice. We are reminded of why we should do intersectionality without the how. So I invite you to explore possible solutions and I'll share mine. One justice committee, one. Let's call it the justice committee. This one committee will have multiple subcommittee teams. Each team would focus on an area that would have traditionally been its own committee, if not for this model. 
By collaborating as a web of subcommittees, we reduce the burden on leaders and members. They meet together, one meeting, yes, one meeting, and then caucus in their subcommittee teams during the meeting. They come back and report out, everyone knows what everyone else is doing and why. Subcommittee teams' notes are accessible to everyone. With this model, we shift committee justice work to spiritual practice. We respect time, we respect transparency, information is accessible to all. We practice that interconnectedness isn't just about us as individuals within the wider world, but us within our congregations and how we structure our committees is an expression of our faith. Even the eighth principle calls us into accountability for our structures. Small group ministries are great for ministering to each other and providing social supports to one another. Yet this model is more about deepening adult faith engagement and the theological voice of its membership, strengthening communication, removing inefficiencies to be more effective at not so much ministering to each other, but with the expressed purpose of ministering to the world. The leaders of this one committee energize and facilitate, remind and teach us how to live into our justice work through a spiritual lens. That is their role. Multiple branch chiefs heading each subcommittee team. There are no committee term length requirements. Members can effortlessly flow from one subcommittee to another. This structure supports our new goals and new way in which we want to be in community with each other. This addresses pain points too many meetings, silos, and lackluster volunteer engagement. Melissa Flora Bixler, pastor of Raylob Mennonite Church explains in her article, Capitalism is Killing the Small Church. She says that she does not believe that the decline of the small church is because there's not enough programs for young people or that people are too busy or don't care about religion or are self-absorbed. She thinks congregants are just exhausted. She says, and I quote, my parishioners scrounge for health care, drown in student debt, and create spreadsheets of daycare costs to see whether they can afford to have children. This economic system is not one from which my congregants can extract themselves. It is a force that controls their lives." End quote. The small church, and most UU congregations are small, cannot sustain multiple meetings, multiple committees, and less support. The system, our structures must change for us to thrive into the future. In this model, the Beloved Community Committee Model, or BCC for short, there is one strong, sustainable, vibrant tree with many branches. It grows fruit which nourishes the children and youth. It provides shade to those who need it. For us to have peace on earth, we need to embody love, Focusing on economic justice can help us reach the peace on earth we seek as individuals and as congregations. We put love in action on an individual level when we get out of the rat race and live into our calling. We put love in action when we nourish beloved community and break down silos in our congregations. Our congregations and communities have callings. The BCC model gives us a new structure that flows with not against our current reality. It enables us to discover and live into our callings as congregations and communities. It enables us to dismantle our oppressive structures that no longer serve us. By opening our divine gifts, we love ourselves. Once we love ourselves, we are better prepared to love our neighbor, 
our faith community, the world. May it be so.